Mary is a 30-year-old woman who's involved in a high-speed rollover motor vehicle crash. She self-extricates, meaning she gets out of the car herself, and insists she has no neck or back pain. Can we take Mary at face value, or do we need to be concerned that she might have a spinal cord injury and need a mobilization? This is Trauma Nursing to Go. We're going to talk about spinal immobilization, specifically who does and doesn't need to be immobilized. If you're not familiar with spinal immobilization, this is a very common practice in trauma. We essentially strap people down to hard backboards and place them in firm cervical collars right around their neck. If it sounds barbaric, well, it kind of is. If you want to know what it looks like, if you're not familiar, a quick Google image search will definitely give you an idea. This is a really big topic in trauma because we do this to almost everybody. So spinal immobilization is a long-standing practice with the idea that we would protect a possible spinal cord injury in the neck or back and potentially stop it from getting worse. For example, maybe there's a fracture in part of the spine But if the neck gets moved in a certain way, if it's an unstable fracture, that fracture fragment can then damage the cord underneath. Or there's already spinal cord damage, but moving the fracture fragment could make it worse. We typically do this when we feel that the mechanism may cause a spinal cord injury, like a motor vehicle crash or a fall. This is an old practice, as in since the 1960s, And some protocols were so extreme that they would require a takedown by EMS for anyone with a severe enough mechanism, where even if the person was standing and walking, multiple providers would have to get involved and literally take this person down onto that board and immobilize them. So we're talking about these rigid hard cervical collars of the neck and a hard backboard. This is not comfortable on a good day, and most of these people are not having good days. 5 million patients in America are mobilized every year, with only 2 to 5% of them having some type of stable injury, with only 1 to 2% of them having an actual unstable cervical spine injury. Unstable meaning that there's a fracture fragment that is essentially quote-unquote unstable, which can move around and damage the spinal cord, thus resulting in a spinal cord injury. The name immobilization is a bit of a misnomer because the C-collars themselves do not keep your patient's neck from moving. It's more of a reminder to stay in a neutral position. Selective immobilization, meaning where you're not immobilizing everybody, but just based on specific criteria, has become very big with first responders and subsequently hospitals. Have you ever heard a patient maybe walk in from a fall or a car crash and as soon as they arrive, someone panics and says they need to get a collar on right now? Maybe that someone is you, and that someone was probably me years ago before I learned as much as I did about trauma. But no worries, we are here to learn. Let's first talk about what our fears are about cervical spine injuries. There's a lot of literature and interest on this topic, but there's not a lot of hard evidence. We're never going to randomize people into getting immobilized or not and see who has worse outcomes of spinal cord injuries. So observational data is all we're going to get, which is why there is endless debate. Reviewing the literature, there are some themes that come up often, one of which is the fear of worsening an injury, a big fear of ours, and then what are the risks or harms of cervical collars? Let's start by trying to ease our fears. Remember how we said immobilization started in the 60s? 
At that time, there were some case reports of patients developing paralysis from us as the healthcare people failing to recognize and protect an unstable spine. Missing a spinal cord injury is very understandably a nightmare that we never want to let happen to our patients, but researchers actually looked back for any such case reports of this classic horror story of this totally alert person suddenly deteriorating, becoming paralyzed, and it does not exist. But is there any harm in having them in collar just in case? Cervical collars increase intracranial pressure, they complicate airway management, and those collars and backboards can cause pressure ulcers. They are incredibly painful and uncomfortable. Think especially of our patients that have long transport times to get to the trauma center. And even amongst experienced clinicians, when asked to demonstrate placing a cervical collar, only 11% of them place them on correctly. So with that in mind, let's just be clear who undoubtedly needs to be immobilized and they need this collar. In blunt trauma, patients who are altered, poorly responsive, or completely unresponsive all have a spinal cord injury until proven otherwise, and they will get boarded and collared. Patients with neck pain, numbness, weakness, any of those neurologic types of symptoms get a collar. Anyone with a past medical history with cervical disc disease, like stenosis or narrowing of the cervical spine, pretty much buys a collar for just about everything. And honestly, those are the people that have ground level falls or they trip on something and they do have unstable spinal fractures and subsequent paraplegia. The backboard itself, practically useless in terms of a spinal cord injury. And generally, it makes it worse with all the pressure it applies and how uncomfortable it is. This is a great device for transporting and transferring your patients, but get it off them ASAP. So the gray area comes in when our patients are alert. Let's come back to Mary. She's alert, she's cooperating, and most importantly, she's self-extricated and got herself out of the car and is ambulating on scene. She denies any midline C-spine tenderness, denies any numbness or weakness to any of her extremities, and she's got nice, strong grips. Should we immobilize her or at least put her in a cervical collar? There's two decision rules we generally go by, nexus and the Canadian C-spine rule. By the nexus criteria, we can clinically clear Mary based on our assessment that she does not need a collar. But by the Canadian C-spine rule, they take mechanism into account, and this wasn't just a minor fender bender. She was on a highway speed rollover collision, and this could be considered a significant enough mechanism that her neck should be immobilized and further evaluated. As a side note, in America, we generally use the nexus criteria, and there isn't necessarily a consensus about which rule is better, but a lot of countries like Canada and Australia are using the Canadian C-spine rule, and some of those areas also have their RNs clinically clearing their lowest patients based on the Canadian C-spine rule. But that is not happening in America, at least not yet. So back to Mary. Okay, everything was normal. We clinically cleared her, and she did not need to be immobilized, because we're in America, and we probably use nexus. But what if Mary was intoxicated? If she's too drunk to walk, then it's obvious she needs to be immobilized. But if she's walking and talking and swears her neck is fine, I only had a couple beers. Do we have to collar her? By the nexus criteria, yes, we do. And we will likely have to CT her C-spine and wait for her to sober up to completely reassess her. So what if Mary wasn't drunk, but she has a very obviously deformed and painful arm that she's holding as she gets out of the car? This brings up the question of a distracting injury. If she's distracted by the pain in her arm, she may in fact have some neck pain or maybe some paresthesias, but she just doesn't notice them right now. With the nexus criteria, we immobilize patients with distracting injuries. 
But distracting injuries is another topic of debate, and some studies have been done showing that patients with distracting injuries like femur fractures can be clinically cleared successfully if they're alert and cooperative. Good news is we can generally agree on something with spinal mobilization, and that is the routine use in penetrating trauma is not recommended when there is no neurologic impairment. We have data that goes so far as to show that there is concern it actually worsens the outcomes in this patient's Although, yes, there is still debate because there's that fear of missing an unstable injury. To be able to clinically clear somebody's C-spine, they need to be alert and calm and cooperative. Now, if you were just shot in the neck, how calm do you think you will feel? Or does that kind of count as a distraction in and of itself? Up for debate. So in summary, there is a lot of debate on this topic, and there is no standardized black and white answer. What's good about the callers? They remind us to be careful. They remind us to be cautious about the patient's neck and think about potential injuries. And you need to know what your agency or facility standard of care is and go from there. If you're in America, you probably go with the Nexus and Mary can be cleared and not need a collar unless she is intoxicated or has a distracting injury. But just as a reminder, so long as your patient isn't doing cartwheels in the department, their neck is going to be just fine. This is Trauma Nursing To Go. Thank you for listening to Trauma Nursing To Go. I hope you are enjoying this podcast. As a reminder, I do not represent my employer, and the cases presented here are fictional and intended for educational purposes only. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and get updates and check out the website traumanursingtogo.com. If there's any topics, questions, or concerns you have, please contact me through the website, my email, or you can contact me on Twitter. Thanks for listening.